0: There is that deep connection between how I saw myself and the shame growing up and all of those really, really dark feelings, as well as the messages that were coming at me in real time that were validating some of those messages I already had in my head.
1: What drives you can make you or break you. So it is so important to get clear on what beliefs and concerns inform your drive and motivation. Now, we often look to our values and commitments and operations as a map to how we do life and work, and those are great. In fact, they're essential. But there are things that get in the way of honoring those commitments to ourselves and those we serve, no matter what we professed as our values and mission. The messages that tell us we're not enough. We have to do more or get more, or we have to over deliver and never disappoint. These shame-based messages are played inside our hearts and minds so regularly, we do not even recognize them as they infect our meaningful work. They get in the way of our ability to make our aspired values consistently lived in action, and they manipulate genuine generosity and feel connecting our worth to external opinions and accolades, whispering on repeat destructive lies about our worth and value. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to the Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. I suspect we all carry some aspect of the burden of shame. <laughs> Shoot billions of dollars are spent speaking to our pain and feelings of not enough so we buy a product or service. Combined with how shame shows up in families, culture, and business, it is fair to say we all carry some shame. Now the tricky part is knowing the extent we protect from being overwhelmed by these burdens of shame on a daily basis. And I say this because shame is insidious, sneaky, and can become a powerful driving force in our lives if we don't get clear on what is driving us and why we're making the choices we do day in and day out. And I think this is especially hard because you have an intellectual understanding of shame. Now, Brene Brown defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or fear of not being worthy of love and belonging. So this intellectual understanding of shame can fool you into thinking you have the awareness and tools to actually navigate it. But until you really look at your own unique experience of shame and what drives it, shame will continue to chip away at your capacity for courage and convince you to compromise your integrity. And we can also end up defaulting into one of shame's favorite places to hang, grind culture. We live in a culture that celebrates working more and doing more. And grind culture is the perfect camouflage for the driver of shame. But there is a dark underbelly to this grind. So instead of facing the parts of our story we fear shedding light on, we default to the grind of doing more, being more, having more, as a means to hide the parts of ourselves shame has said we need to keep from the world. But let's face it. We're exhausted. So, doing more does not feel sustainable. Once the numbing grind of hustling can't be kept up, we look for other ways to manage the messages of shame. Our worth and meaning then become conflated with ratings and reviews or the approval of others. Now, some of you may puff up and say you don't care about these things, but I suspect in those quiet places, they make everyone feel quite desperate. So getting granular about what drives you and why can reveal some hard truths and important data that can help you lead yourself and others without dodging the messages of shame. And that is exactly what my guest today chose to do. After a very public fall, he was forced to look at how he ended up where he did and what needed tending. Ref Rodriguez is a social entrepreneur who has spent his career starting organizations and programs whose mission is to change the life trajectories of those most affected by educational, economic, and social injustice. He has served as a classroom teacher, school principal, administrator, university professor, and elected school board member. At the age of 27, he founded a charter middle school in his home community of Northeast LA. And he went on to co-found a network of high-performing charter schools serving low-income, first-generation college-going students in Los Angeles. And now he's currently working on a program to significantly improve the educational and life outcomes of Black and Latina males attending California's community colleges. Listen for how Ref identified the messages he was hearing from others and how they confirmed the not enough beliefs he was holding. And notice the impact on Ref when he chose to be who he thought others wanted him to be instead of being authentic. And pay attention to the polarizing emotions Ref felt after an incredible victory. I suspect many of you may relate to this. Now, please welcome Dr. Ref Rodriguez to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Ref, I am so glad you're here with me today.
0: Oh, thanks so much, Rebecca. Thanks for inviting me. I always get so much from our conversation. So I hope that in this process, not only will I get something, but your listeners will also get something as well.
1: I have no doubt that is going to happen. I I want to kick off just talking about your background. You have a background in social entrepreneurship with a special focus on supporting Black and Brown leaders in the education space, which, as you know, is dear to me because I'm married to a veteran high school teacher. And I'm curious, what experiences from your childhood growing up in L.A. inspired your vision and then eventual decision to co-found the Charter School Puck, which is called Partnerships to Uplift Communities.
0: Yeah. You know, it's it's about the story, right? It's about <laughs> where we come from that leads us to the places where we end up. My parents are immigrants from Mexico. And so they settled in Los Angeles, brought three kids with them. I was the first one born in LA. And so LA is the place where my family found opportunity. Mm. Growing up, you know, typical Latinos, they didn't have trust of the public school system, not because they thought that it wasn't good or it was they didn't know it. They themselves were not educated. Uh, My parents have a sixth and eighth grade education. So they went to where they knew the community and the fellowship, which was to the Catholic schools and the Catholic Church. At any rate, because they had to pay tuition to send us there, I always say that I lost my parents growing up so that we could get a good education um you know (sighs) they just worked um you know my mom worked was with us at home during the day but we were at school and then in the evening they would both get up around five o'clock and go to the uh, high rises in the city of glendale and clean those offices uh for for other people and it was all to get us ahead at any rate that left a big impression on me this idea that Mm. to get an education, to get an opportunity, to feel comfortable and confident in a community, you'd have to work two jobs and in some ways lose that kind of relationship with your parents. And that made a big impact on me. And I just really felt at the end of the day, kids kids, and parents shouldn't have to make that choice, that our public schools should be great places where people feel um, in a community where students have joyful learning experiences, on and on. Well, in L.A., at the time that I was growing up professionally, we were on year-round. Kids were getting bussed out. Kindergarteners were getting bussed out from South Los Angeles to the Valley. So they are getting on to buses at 5.30 in the morning uh, to be able to go to uh, have a seat at a school. And so we started and I co-founded a charter school. Um, that eventually grew into what you mentioned, partnerships top with communities. At the end of the day, it was about serving the community that I lived in, that I grew up on, that I love so dearly, giving opportunities to families and young people. But it's really important that I think what set us apart was our strong belief that this was not about replacing the public school system, that it wasn't about um competing with the public school system. It was about collaborating. It was about making the entire schools in the community better. And what I also believed, which is very, very controversial in the charter school movement, I believe that those schools, once they do that, should go away, right? Um, because there are anchor okay. schools in the community. Okay.
1: Unpack that a little bit more. Say that again. Say that again, because I think that's a very fascinating.
0: Yeah. So the charter schools were really started to be labs of innovation to help the larger system get better. And so I firmly believe that that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to show that it can be done and then collaborate with the system uh, to be able to do that. And then once the system gets better, the schools in the community, the charter schools should go away, that that they're no longer needed. And the the reason why they were set to be was to innovate, incubate, and spread the ideas. And you know what we did at POC? And what continues to be done there is that there are relationships, teachers to teachers, principals to principals, in those communities to make sure that that's happening. And I will also share with you that in Northeast LA, where I started that first school and where I grew up and and lived, two we eventually started seven schools, and two of those seven have now closed um, because they're no longer needed because there's spaces in the community where young people can go and have choices. Uh, that are traditional public schools.
1: So if I'm hearing you correctly, this mindset of the charter schools is to call up and call in the existing school system to say, hey, here's a model. Because I actually remember a conversation you and I had maybe seven or eight years ago when you brought me in to work with your leaders at your schools. And one of the schools was shared with another public high school, so you're within that. that's where we held a lot of our meetings. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about that you were reflecting on how your colleagues in the public school system were like, how are you getting this done so quickly? How are you able to allocate this? And you were you were telling them like, hey, I don't have to deal with A, B, or C. We can streamline this. There was less of a bureaucracy. Yeah. And they were taking that going, okay, here's a tangible vision tangible plan that it's still a behemoth I mean LA is the second largest school district in the country right but I wrote that stuck out in my mm. head and I'm connecting the dots with your vision here of calling up and calling in and saying here's how we can do it versus like this is how it's always been done I like I want to like I get really punchy <laughs> and stabby when I hear that so thank you thank you for sharing that that's I could see how that's controversial H- how did people respond when you would share your vision i mean because i know there's such i mean again my husband works in the public school system and so i've been privy and having worked with your organization and 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 other leaders in all different whether it's private school public charter all all the different innovations there's this it's almost like it feels almost like our political party system is yes, like very sure. very entrenched so so again yeah. so you're coming in saying we're here to help call up our city as a whole And we don't have to be here forever. How did people respond? And what? what,
0: Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, folks didn't believe it. Folks thought he's got an ulterior motive, Uh, right? That this is about getting in entrenched and then doing away with the system, right? So that's one reaction from folks, because in all sincerity, to say that is, you know, to say, look, there's an expiration date to my work. And if we do this well, that's what we should all be headed towards, right? The expiration date of my work. But but then there were folks who really got huh. it, who who thought about it, and very much like you just did, connected dots and said, you know, we could learn. I love the quote, and I'm going to uh, mess it up here, but a friend of mine, Angela, would always say it to me, she would say, you know, Harriet Tubman would say that she could free more slaves if only they knew they were slaves, right? So this uh. idea that people are so entrenched in the system, they don't even know that there is possibility until yeah. they see it in front of them, right? Yes, there's. A, so let's streamline this. Let's do it. What's best for kids? Um, because, well, it's always been done this way. And so people get, huh. you know, in this cycle of it's either learned helplessness or regrettable frustration. Pression.
1: It's oppression. It's
0: a yes, absolutely. And I know we've shared. Uh, some of the frustrations that Gavin and his colleagues have had in trying to do some things and just trying to, you know, the great thing about it is that there are people like Gavin in our systems who, no matter how frustrated and oppressed they feel, will still continue yeah. uh, to try to do and change things because it's important. It, it comes at a cost, though.
1: It comes at a cost. Yes. And I, and, I and that's part of how you and I met because you wanted to support your principals and, and your teachers. Um, so I appreciate I appreciate you sharing that background. And I, I want to fast forward a little bit and take us back to the moment. So you you started this charter school system and now you decide to run for office to serve on the Los Angeles Unified School Board. I'm curious, what was the tipping point that led you to this decision? And what did you think that you could bring to the school board that was already not happening? Wow. So
0: I'll tell you, the person, my predecessor, the person sitting, the incumbent on the board was completely anti-charter. It was always no to any renewals, no to any new schools. And, you know, you to have someone on the board that was so opposed to it and so on one side of the issue um, when they represent different constituencies, different beliefs, different different beliefs and choices, all of those things you know I just felt like the person wasn't doing the right job, wasn't doing the job in a way that that really was moving us forward that in fact would set us back mm. uh, more than moving us forward. And so I remember talking to colleagues and saying, you know we got to find somebody to run. The truth of the matter is running an election and for whatever reason a school board election in Los Angeles, is a very, very difficult thing. And I, I was naive. I didn't know. I'm not a politician. I was. There's My interest was, if I get in for a term, let's see what we can do in a term, and that's it, right? I wasn't going to run again, nor was I going to seek higher office. It was mostly about, well, we've got to show a different side to this conversation. And I didn't think I was going to get elected because you don't usually beat an incumbent. Right. Um, and especially not in this, the board seat that I represented, which was a gerrymandered seat. It was the Northeast part of Los Angeles, connected by a sliver of a community in East Los Angeles to South LA. And so in Northeast, you've got educated, you've got um, more diversity, you've got more wealth in the Southeast, predominantly Latino, very poor, very impacted communities. And so in fact, that board seat has always been represented by someone who lives in the Northeast. They've got more political clout up there. There are more people who vote up there. So, again, I thought, if all I'm going to do is spend this time campaigning to change the conversation, that's going to be enough. And then we had a strategy. We wanted to bring out the Latino vote. And so I spent a lot of time in the Southeast saying, don't let the Northeast choose who represents you. Make sure that you have your voice and power. And and lo and behold, got elected, which was... um, you know, it's sort of, what is it, the candidate, right? You sort of wake up at the end of the movie and it's sort of like, oh, what do I do now? I just got elected. And so, so unfortunately, I mean, I wish I could say that I did it for, because I, I had a strategy, because I had a vision of what could happen. It really was to change the conversation. And um, and honestly, I think over the time that I was on that board, we did. We were able to to start a different conversation um, and, and really help people understand and see a bigger picture of what is possible
1: So let me ask a clarifying question, because, and you know, I've worked, I've worked in politics, I've worked on campaigns. And so you said, you got into this, you didn't really think you could win, but you wanted to at least change the conversation. But I'm wondering, at what point in that campaign where you're like, Oh, crap, I think we could do this. And when did it start to change for you? Because I mean, from what I know of you, you're like, you don't wing things. You like you, you have end game, you know, and your yes, exactly. purpose. And and sure. so, but I also see to you, like this was a long shot. I get that you're being realistic with yourself, but at what point where you're like, I want this and not I want this, but we can do this.
0: We can do this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And if anybody gets it, it's you because you have been in this world and in both of our worlds, (laughs) right. In terms of education with your husband. And then of course in politics and you know what I'll also say in, in the space of human development, you know, so you've got this. Uh, a tremendous um, way of seeing things that I certainly connect with. I'll tell you, so we, there was a primary, and then of course there was the the general election. And in the primary, there were three of us that were vying for the seat, the incumbent, and then myself and another gentleman who also lived in the Northeast part of LA. And I came in first in that primary. So we thought, okay, well, if at least I come in second, because we think the incumbent will come in first, he's got the support of the teachers union, and he's been in the seat, then then you know we've got a shot um, to really figure things out. So it was around that time where we started to see that things were shifting a little bit. That yeah, you know, I think I might actually get in second here, and if we do, then let's give it a real gung ho at the at the general right. And then I came in first, and so then it was okay. So this is. I see that there is light here and I see that I've got to be very serious about what it is that we're going to start to think about doing. Because if we get that seat, then we then we have an opportunity to really do some things.
1: Just and this is probably a little nerdy, but a part of me wants to. Know, do you recall the percentage of people who voted in that district for that primary and how, how did that compare to past uh, primaries? In the past, do you have any of that at Datax? I know I didn't prep you on that, but I'm just geeking yeah. out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: no. So I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's a very low turnout election. Okay. That's for sure. Um, and I'm saying like, if it was eight percent of the registered voters, it, that might be a lot. What we what did change and shift dr- dramatically is the composition of that eight percent. So there were so many more Latinos who voted in Southeast LA than ever before, and so that's really what shifted.
1: Was it maybe the first election they voted in for some of these folks?
0: For some of them? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was really a beautiful thing for me was my mom had just become a citizen. And so for the first time in her
1: no way. life,
0: she voted in a U.S. election and she got to vote for her son. Well, I assume she voted for her son. I don't know if <laughs> that's to be totally true.
1: <laughs> I think that's a fair yes assumption there. So that's tender. That must have been a, a proud mom moment. But I, I, as you know, because having worked on campaigns, i I know how brutal they can be. and they ask so much of the candidate and their loved ones, especially in today's like hyper connected 24 hour <laughs> news cycle. What impacted campaigning in in LA, particularly I think on this big yeah. city where the, you know, there's just a lot of politics, the stakes are high. what what impact did that have on you and your community?
0: So so the other thing that that is uh, a point here as well on top of what you just said that they're that they're just brutal that there's a lot at stake that it is that I was a charter proponent that I came from the charter movement and I was facing up against someone who always voted no on charters. So immediately the story became the charters versus traditional public schools.
1: And that was such a narrow yeah. such a narrow aspect of what you wanted to bring to the table. Okay. I, absolutely and it was completely and You know, it
0: served as a proxy, The election served as a proxy for what was going down in in real life, is that the the school district and some of its leadership felt the more charters come along, the less resources for the traditional public school, et cetera, et cetera. So even and, and then even during debates and other conversations I would have with the news media, they didn't care about my conversation around collaboration coming together, they wanted to sort of feed and fuel the fire on the polarization. Right. And sort of asking me very targeted questions about my opponent and his stance on, you know, not approving any charters, et cetera. And so it it really became a, like I said, a proxy war. And, And you know, what's so sad about that is that it was all about resources. And about the scarcity of resources and fighting for those crumbs, rather than really talking about the education of young people, Mm. the joyful learning, the support of our teachers, the um, leadership, you know, pipeline. That wasn't sexy. What was sexy was this combative situation. Also, there was tons, millions of dollars put into that election. So the, you know, Citizens United and all of that is a Citizens United? Yes, right? So there were outside spending, both against me and for me, and so um, the, the, it, at that point it was the the most money that had ever come into a school board election in the nation. And eventually, the stakes have gotten even higher, and others on that board have actually they spent a lot of mil- more millions wow. more than what they did to me. But it was,
1: it, and this is for school board. I mean, it's L.A., but I think it's worth noting that it, it just total sidebar though that the. There's such a interest in education and the stakes. And education, like you're like, let's let's talk about our kids. Let's talk about our teachers. Let's talk about our communities. But there's such an agenda around education, and we see the fruits of that in our culture today, by attacking education and trying to, you know, that's a whole other yeah, conversation <laughs> for sure. But for you, so you get these pointed questions, um, you know, you, talking about the narrow issue, feeding the polarities, which. You know that that's ratings that sells papers, and you were getting defined. You were getting narrowed down into that. What again? Bringing it back, what impact did that have on you, and and those around you?
0: Yeah. So I'll tell you. You know, as a first time candidate, I I you know people prepare for this, and there's organizations who prepare candidates, right? And in fact, you go and you usually become a staffer at another elected, and you kind of learn the and you none of that. And then I had no support. We had no real money, so we couldn't hire a legal team. The people that had that I had grown up with in the charter movement, I would maybe ask for advice. My colleagues couldn't talk to me because they were part of a 501c4 that was, so there was sort of a wall. And it was a very lonely experience for one being mm-hmm. a one-time candidate, first-time candidate. My family and the community rallied for me. Part of the reason why we did win is we had people on the ground. My work and reputation for all of those years uh, people went out and knocked on doors. God bless them, and and so forth. But I'll tell you, you know, first of all, what what you know about me, and what the listeners should know is that because of of growing up with shame around my being gay and coming to terms with all of that, and and growing up in a Catholic household as well as Catholic schools, um, I went to Catholic schools. Elementary, middle, high, and college, and that repressive approach that I have the sense of shame. I have a sense of not feeling worthy. I have a sense of of sometimes being harder on myself than I should, which also means I'm a very closed person. I'm a gregarious person by nature. I I, I love being around people, but I am not. I'm a guarded person, and and I and people say things to me sometimes that really. Cut deep, which means that I need to feel and do something to overcome what that message sent to me was. So what I want to kind of start going down towards this a little bit about what happened, because it ties into being that first candidate and being lonely, being alone and feeling lonely, is that folks told me early on, look, you are not going to be considered serious unless you have X number of dollars in your coffers, unless people really donate to you. And I would make the calls and people would be like, people that I knew have known for 10, 20 years would be like, well, I'm not sure that I could donate because I'm not really convinced about your candidacy. And I'm like, first of all, no one is stepping up to do this. Secondly, you've known me for 20 years. You know what I can do. And now I still have to prove myself to you again. Wow. You know, it's so those, and and as I mentioned to you before, hearing those messages, really, it's like, wow, I thought. We had a professional and collegial friendship. And now you're telling me i got to prove myself again. And some of it was race. Some of it was, you know, this Latino kid should not, that wasn't a kid, but Latino, I maybe should not have the seat. He has no experience. Some of it was, I don't know. I don't know. But it cut deep for me. And and it led me to make some decisions because I had no one to talk to about these decisions. I had no legal help and support. I couldn't talk to some of my colleagues because of the firewall that was set up. And that led me down a road that eventually imploded, you know, um, for me. But But there is that deep connection between how I saw myself and the shame growing up and all of those really, really dark feelings, as well as the messages that were coming at me in real time that were validating some of those messages I already had in my head.
1: I I, want to hang out here for a moment because, you know, I'm picturing this and, and I've seen this with other candidates before and I've been a part of fundraising and stuff, but I'm thinking you're in this community that you grew up in. You have a large network. There was folks that you knew and had relationships, partnered with, collaborated with, you know, supported all that. And then when it came time for you to say, hey, I'm here and now I'm inviting you to join me on this. That, that sentence that you said of, I still need to prove myself to you, all of a sudden, you said in this shame that you were holding, it all came to the surface when folks were like, I, I'm not sure about your candidacy. It's not it's not personal. I suspect, it's not personal. You're great. Yes. I suspect they probably yes, said, absolutely. right? Absolutely. You're amazing. If This is just politics. This is just business. But for you, from what I know of you, is this is your heart yeah. and you put it into it and it is and then people say oh you can't take it personally which i call bs too when you care about something you're all in so were there any particular stories from your childhood as you were hearing this again from from people i'm assuming positions of power of uh, money and power go hand in yes. hand and so as they were saying i'm not sure about you what what message what belief got really loud that maybe you had kept at bay for a while what came to the surface?
0: Yeah, so part of growing up, and you know, the other thing, and I, I, you're the person that I wanted to sit and talk with about this. It is an important thing to put out into the world. I think there are lessons here that that should be learned, and and certainly for me to talk about it is is an important part of my healing process. But I've never talked about this publicly before. This is the first time, and it's now been you know four years, three years, four years actually since things got um, really chaotic in my life but uh, to answer your question the um you know growing up knowing that there was something different about me that i could not share in my world and repressing that what i did growing up is i became rather than being my authentic self i became someone else i became the best student mm. i became the most liked friend i became the most helpful person i worked since I was 14 so that my parents wouldn't have to pay my high school tuition, so I didn't ask my parents for money. And that's not untypical of, uh, of working less Latinos. I became something I wasn't so that I could, so that I could get the, the love from the outside world, because I felt for so long that they wouldn't love me if they knew this deep secret. And so. When someone was saying to me, you know, we need you to prove yourself again. It went right back to that, to that. Here I am showing up authentically to this process, to this, to this point of, of this campaign and what you want me to do is be someone else. Exactly the same message again.
1: No, I just wanted to clarify too. Brought you back. Is this is? Tell me if I'm connecting these dots correctly. To those times where you hadn't come out uh, that you were gay. You're going to Catholic schools in a family that there just there were a lot of a lot of rules, a lot of shoulds, and so you. I'm sensing that you're the island of ref mm-hmm. and ref alone started early, and you got off that island. It sounds like for a while as you came out came into your own started really just leaning into all of you and then when you showed up as all of you and then asked for support it was like all of that just came back up and I'm just I'm feeling that even in my own heart right Mm -hmm. now I suspect a lot of people listening are gonna resonate with that so with that said then what did the campaign trail teach you about yourself
0: uh, so one, it, it immediately taught me that I could go back very quickly into that guarded <laughs> island, yeah. right? Which, which I you know I fought so much to get away from, and I had learned over time that as I was coming, I had wonderful coming out stories. Everybody was just amazing. My parents, everybody, uh, you know. So, so I was yes, leaning into my own and 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 all of those things. And, and having success, being who I am. So one, it, I learned that how quickly I could go back into that island. If you see photos of me from that campaign, I must have lost in, because the campaign really started in December and it ended in May, the two elections. I must have lost like 30 pounds in those few months just from going really hard on the campaign, but also um, not taking care of myself because of that same, you know, island and sort of that, you know, really punishing myself in some ways, right? And that's the other piece I think I learned is that that we can go back, not only playing the tape recorder and the messages, but the self-harm that we can inflict on ourselves. And mm. in that space of pain, feel comfortable. Like, I know this place. I've been here before. It's a lot yes. easier being here than being in, yes. you know, showing up in my true self.
1: Wow. Yes. That known, right? The known is Comfortable. I'm doing air quotes, even though it's miserable. It's known. So it brought you Absolutely. back, like your homeostasis. The the echoes of those burdens in your story just whiplashed you back. And so that came to the surface too. And again, we live in a culture. Let's just be clear that celebrates sacrificing yourself for the greater good. That is, yeah, idol it's like idolized. Like you just took yes. it for the team. And and I mean. It is it's sick and insidious. So I want to take a moment to celebrate election night for you because you won. Mm. I want you to take us back to election night and and share with us some memories that stand out to you today. Just that mm. moment where the results came in, you look on the screen, refs declared the winner. Yeah, take us back to that night.
0: Absolutely. So yeah, it was amazing. So Tuesday night, of course, that's when our elections are. Um, and we had the second floor of a of an older building in Highland Park, it was actually a, a ballroom. Really, it's probably used as a dance ballroom in the '40s and uh, '30s and '40s. And I walk in to this celebration, and at that point, we we had not been declared the winner because we we wouldn't really know of that till the next day. But all of the mail-in ballots had been counted and were put out into the world, and I was so far ahead that there was no way I was going to lose. And so I walk into the space. And it's just, everybody's cheering and clapping, and I could see that my family, the families I worked with for, for decades, the community was all there. I started to cry. It was, you know, it was, it was an interesting moment because part of me was in the celebration with all of these people. We had done something bigger than ourselves, and it was we. Then the other part was a little bit shocking to feel that kind of love. When you're actually in a space of pain and and thinking that you're unloved, and all of a sudden you get into a room where you're just being showered with all of this positive and loving energy, and it it you know, there is a big shock and a jolt that happens, and i, I there is a photo that I think Ellie Tong's run it as a front page photo where I'm hugging my aunt. My mom was actually in Mexico at the time, so she wasn't there in person, but she called me. Uh, during that celebration, but I'm hugging my aunt and I'm just, I'm falling onto her and I'm just sobbing. You know, it was just such a, um, it was a contradictory moment of emotion, right? It was, we did it. And then it was also, do I deserve this?
1: Whoa! Very,
0: very strange. Very strange.
1: What are you noticing right now with you as you recall that memory and speak to that dichotomy? I So,
0: yeah, it's. I, I could feel it. I feel goosebumps actually. I feel again that that energy coming towards me, but then I also know what real pain I was in at that time as well. Yeah, and so there. So I, I'm feeling a little bit of both of that now. Yeah, it's it's a bittersweet uh, moment
1: for sure. And and I, I think a lot of people can relate to. I know I can too. Of the world sees one thing and on the inside is a completely different thing. And that almost, at least for me, I know has pushed me even deeper loneliness and feeling like more distance, because even though like, again, and you're in this extreme like adulation celebration, Mm -hmm. because I mean, there was a very grassroots community effort that you organized, and people who care about you, care about kids. And they were so they were happy. This was a victory, and it was a victory, not just a win. But it was a win for a community that has been so underrepresented. And so the, the, there, was a lot of victories that night. But yeah. I appreciate to and to give acknowledge those parts that, that's you know we're holding that pain for you, and that's like if you do, you really know. And I think it's amazing too. We could still get the thing that we want, and we get there. And there's still that where shame lingers, says, "Do you yeah. deserve this? Who do you think you are?" Are you good enough? And there's, it's like until you go right to that shame. Nothing, no matter what external accolades you get, shame hangs on. It's insidious. It's relentless. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I do want to, I, I want to shift the conversation to a tender, more of a tender, and and a very vulnerable and and public, face down moment. So, mm-hmm. you said so. I think it was a little over three years ago when it officially happened that in the middle of serving your term on the. LA school board, but you also two months into becoming president of the board, just want to note that you resigned after pleading guilty to a felony count of conspiracy, right? And this yeah. was, like I said, a very public face down. It's one thing to have it in our own lives, but you know you had reporters and your community circling around. And I, I'd love for you to take us back to that moment as you were navigating this very public reckoning.
0: Yeah. So also to clarify, I want to make sure folks know, because it ties back to sure. a little bit about what I talked about before, feeling alone and not having, having to prove myself right and hearing from folks you have got to have X number of dollars for people to really support you, take you seriously. Um, so I made a huge mistake that, you know, when I asked family members to give me contributions that, that I paid for, it was my money, um, you know, so that is considered money laundering and that is uh, considered a conspiracy when you get people uh, to do this. And so um, the felony, funnily enough, is conspiracy to commit a misdemeanor because to, to launder money into a campaign is a misdemeanor. But what became a felony was that I was being ch- charged with, with that conspiracy. And what also needs to be known is that um, the district attorney's office didn't want to ask me to step down from the board, but they wanted me off the board and the way that to do that was to charge me with a felony. What was so confusing is that I went to a lawyer immediately after we kind of figured out this was wrong, a political lawyer. And the political lawyer said to me, go to the city ethics commission, tell them what happened there, you know, your career is over. You're not going to get elected ever again, but you've gotten elected. So you're actually, this was even before you get elected, but you're doing well. And if you get elected, you'll have a term to do something good. But if you tell them everything, then they're going to come be more lenient on you. We do this stuff all the time. This happens all the time. It's unusual that it's a candidate putting in his own money. Mostly it's big businesses or, you know, developers. They're trying to get city council members elected. But you will know, get a 50% reduction on the fine. And, you know, and that'll be that. He did also say to me, they, they will refer to the DA's office. But if anything, it'll be a misdemeanor. And, you know, if they even decide to, to prosecute. So we went and we gave the testimony and I gave the testimony, told the story, gave them all the backup information. They sat on it for a couple of years, actually. Um, when I became board president is when they came after me, the DA came after me with the felony, as well as other counts, 14 misdemeanor counts, something like that. But here's the thing, what, what the political lawyer couldn't get, wrap his head around was why they were making such a big deal, why I was being treated so differently when that history of that ethics commission has never charged anybody 100% of the fines. They were, char- were going to charge me 100% of the fines, which would amounted to $300,000. <sighs> and then secondly, that it actually went to the DA and that the DA decided to indict me. And so, so never in the history has that ever happened. And so they were very confused. Had he, as a political lawyer, thought that this was a bigger deal than it was, He would have immediately told me, get a criminal lawyer along as part of this team. And so, so anyway, so, so that happened. And again, I did something wrong and you pay for that. That that was never an issue for me. It was always, why am I being treated so differently? And then you go, it ties back into the same thing we just talked about, right? Proving yourself, not feeling worthy. See, this wasn't supposed to be, I am imposter syndrome. See, I'm getting punished. I deserve to be punished." And then it was so public. Not only were the papers all over it, reporters outside of my house, and my husband, you know, has worked in media, works in media. And a reporter even came to, to him at one point and said, "'This is a bullshit accusation, isn't it? I mean, this sounds really, really ridiculous that he's being charged for this." People couldn't wrap their head around why this was being made such a big deal. The mistake that I made, at the end of the day, with handling all of this, was that I was told, stay on the board while we're going through the legal process. Because that way you can continue to do the good work that you're doing. You can build more credibility. At that point, if we ever go to trial, maybe people will see the dimension and the depth of who you really are. And that was a year of sheer hell. Uh. Every Tuesday at the board meetings, there would be four or five people, the same four or five people not members of my community, not people I represented, and members of other constituencies that wanted me off the board, who called for me to for resign, who called for, for my resignation, who would say really ugly things to me. And the one thing that you will know, or that you should know about me during public comment is, I was the only board member ever of all seven of us that would sit in public comment, not get up, go to the bathroom, not read other materials, always look at the individuals that came, that they took time out of their day, right?
1: You humanized the people dehumanizing you.
0: Absolutely, because it
1: it sounds like it wasn't just airing their grievances; they were they were on a mission. You know, and again, this is not. I mean, there's again a lot of people carrying a lot of pain, and you became (laughs) the bad. So, and I want to clarify something really quick too. So, there's the misdemeanor part that this initial attorney said. Okay, listen, here's what you need to do: just go in, own it, and here's what the his. This is what's happened in the history of everyone who's who's been in this situation before. So here's what to expect. expect. And this is worst case scenario was, you know, these things. And they they were still painful, but it wasn't, there wasn't the felony piece that was brought in initially. And the felony piece is where everyone started kind of cocking their heads a little bit going, what's going on here? Yes. And was there, there it was the same data that they were, there wasn't anything new. It was the same data. Okay.
0: Absolutely. Gotcha. That's, that's exactly right. It was a very confusing situation. I was a first-time candidate. This wasn't, you know, me being very malicious in terms of... there was, It wasn't even that much money at the end of the day. Um, but what I was trying to show is that I had support so that other people could support me. It was this perverse thing going on in my head, right? Like, so again, I mean, there are rules, there are laws, and I don't excuse myself from any of that. What was clear from the way that it was approached is that... The intent was never looked at what mm-hmm. was the intent here. And so people made up the intent. There were public folks who were saying that it was because I wanted to get in to destroy the public school system. People were making up that I was, uh, that I wanted to get in so badly because I wanted to introduce corruption and, and, you know, in the procurement process of LAUSD. Here's the thing that people don't know about the school district. The board members don't really have a whole lot of power. <laughs> one oh. is you're only one vote of seven. And then two, the people who have the power are the, are the leaders in the district. There's the where the real corruption happens is when you've got a head of procurement who's doing shady things. So people
1: in the jobs, in the jobs that work for the unified. Yeah. yeah so. The
0: board members are not, um, you know, they're not <laughs> getting their you friends guys move on the, the payroll. Money. Yes, You approve, approve the it.
1: money and you move the money around. Yeah. So, I, I would love for you to share, what did the news stories miss that you wish that they reported?
0: So let's also talk about how lonely again it was for me. I could not surprise okay. to anybody about this for fear that if we did go to trial, people would get called, right? So I couldn't talk to friends. I couldn't t- t- talk to my spouse. I couldn't talk to my family. In fact, my family had gone in front of a grand jury. Really? Yeah, which I didn't even know about. They didn't tell me. Oh, before. They're protecting me. I didn't find out until afterwards. And, you know, and, and to this day, nobody has ever talked to me about what actually happened. to the, My mom went to, into the grand jury. Like that's, you know, so, so, so lonely. And I couldn't talk about it. And we didn't put out any public statement about it because here's the thing. Like it was pretty clear. I did something wrong. I admitted to it. I wasn't going to try to spin this for some reason. And so, so we remained quiet and... And there's a little bit of, and and that's easy for me to do. I can compartmentalize like the best of them. You know, I've known how to do that my entire life. I am a master at it. Which also means that I'm, that I, that there are times where I feel very alone. And that there are times where I'm deeply in deep pain that people are not aware of. And so what I wish that people, what the stories never talked about was the contributions that I did make as a board member. Right. The fact that I was a very well-liked board member uh, the other board members, really, I helped bring unity to that board during a very political and polarized time. Um, they never talked about that. I was good at my job. I mean, I really was. And I loved being around the community and, and all the policies that we put on the on the board for up for votes came from the community. We never, we didn't have an agenda. We said, we're going to go and we're going to listen. We're going to bring it up from the grassroots. And we did, none of that ever got talked about the other piece that I think, you know, you do so much for so many for so long and you get no credit for it. You Mm. only get that negative story. You, you Google me right now. That's the first thing that pops up. By the way, I've never Googled myself. Uh, I just, I, I did not read the stories I or the comments. I mean, my family members certainly were very, very upset about things being said um, and social media, et cetera. But yeah, my humanity was taken away during that process. I wasn't seen as a human being. I was seen as, I was seen as corrupt. I mean, I didn't do anything in office, right? I mean, a lot of the folks that get into trouble is because they're using their office to get some benefit and gain. This all happened before I got elected. Had the district attorney told me when I got elected, hey, we know this stuff. You already admitted to it. Don't take the seat. I would have been, yes, no problem. Peace out. (laughs) Peace out. I'm done. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't. They they didn't. It was until I became board president that, oh, he's getting too big for his britches. We better bring him down, right? Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, that part was missed. It's that I am a human being, I have a family that loves and cares for me deeply, but that gets hurt when their loved one is being attacked. That I am somebody's son, that I'm somebody's husband, right? Somebody's brother. Those things, it's unfortunate. I'm a public figure. So, you know, you wanted it, you put up with it, right? But the truth of the matter is, nobody could have prepared me for this. Nobody, um, I don't have a thick skin either. Uh, I, wish that, I wish that I had. I'm a very sensitive individual, and it just hurt really deeply. And, you know, Rebecca, I mean, I lost everything because of this. I lost my reputation. My marriage was in shambles. We actually separated. We sold our home to pay for legal fees. I distanced myself from my family because I was so ashamed. You know, in therapy, I learned that basically I was shedding all the things that I was were just, you know, like an onion, I guess, just
1: kind of falling to the wayside. And that deconstruction process, though, can oh, really be painful. It's a doozy.
0: Oof. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I don't wish it on anybody. No, not in this public way and in a way that you can't defend
1: yourself. What, what did your days look like right after you left the board in the public eye? So I couldn't work. Here's the other thing. You know, you have a felony on
0: your record. No education organization wants you at this point, right? So I couldn't work. I did some volunteering. I helped an immigration organization with citizenship. I went back to school. <laughs> I went to live with my parents, which actually, because I was telling you that we sold our home and, and we, we separated, uh, my husband and I, that was actually the best thing because in a way I went back into that cocoon, into that safety net of my, my parents and my I went back to that room that I grew up in, actually. That's where I, and it was good for me. I went to therapy, a lot of therapy, which was, which was also very good for me. Still i am in therapy. Uh, I recommend it. And so two things, I think, again, the contradictory, I felt free for the first time in my life, no expectations from anyone, which was very, you know, I'd I've, I've spent my entire wow. professional career being expected of and putting myself in situations where people would expect things from me. So I felt free, but then I also felt, again, sort of, so what now? I'm 48 at this point, and so I'm not a spring chicken. You know, I've spent my, my reputation's gone. What now? A lot of soul searching.
1: You talked about the shame, but is there anything else you had to face in order to heal?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I spent a lot of time asking myself why. Not why did it happen to me, but why did I lead myself to this? Huh. The self-sabotage, right?
1: Can I just pause here right there? Yeah. Though I love that because there's the folks that say, why did this happen to me? And then there's the folks that say, why did I make the choices? Why did I do these things that got me here? And those are the folks that really move to deeper healing. That's powerful. Mm. I think that's an important distinction versus why me. Uh, that's hard to heal in that space. But okay, there's an ownership of, okay, why did I do what I did? And there's, there's a compassion, and even in that question, a courageous curiosity in that. So, just wanted Ooh. to acknowledge that.
0: Oh, I, oh, wow. I appreciate it. I, I never I even mean, thought about it that way, but it really was in my thinking about it, in my feeling process. You know, I was, I, the truth of the matter is, I wasn't happy uh, with myself. Even though I had accomplished so many things, I still wasn't happy. It was because I went back into that imposter syndrome, I went back into that person that people wanted to see rather than actually who I am. Right. And I think that's 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 what led me. It was sort of like, look, the world is gonna the universe is telling me you can't be this person for other people anymore. You need to go be yourself. And it was unsustainable. Absolutely unsustainable. Um and and we're gonna we're gonna knock you on your butt to make sure you know that you're on the wrong path.
1: So as you were Working through those questions of, you know, why did I do what I did that got me here? What what came from that discovery and that curiosity?
0: Yeah, so, you know, let's go back to that that I still had a lot of unresolved feelings about who I am, uh, about who I have to hide myself to be, right? Uh, about that, that shame, again, that we've been talking about, that I was still carrying a lot of that, and I was still trying to be someone that people would like rather than someone. And the funny thing is I'm a very likable person, right? But I, I always felt like I better do these big things so that people will like me. And, you know, so I, I was still carrying a lot of that. You know, I used to have a speech that I would give at graduations, every so often one of my, in my repertoire, but it was it was always like listening to the effect of, um, are you the person that would make your five-year-old self proud. And, you know, people loved hearing it. I loved saying it. To the matter was, I wasn't that person. I was just saying those words. My five-year-old self, of all that I had accomplished, of all the awards on walls, of all of the acclamations, of all the people who, who were good to me, and, and, and I was still not the person that would make my five-year-old self proud. There was still self-loathing. There was still, you know, hatred for, for myself. Yeah.
1: How are you feeling towards yourself today? You
0: know, not only going through this, but also going through COVID has really made me real. And losing several family members. I,
1: yeah, you had a lot of loss. Uh,
0: yeah, I just lost my college roommate over the weekend.
1: Oh, yeah, sorry, it's, it's
0: been, it's, But But those two things coming together have really made me understand what is really important. This is going to sound really cliche, right? Oh, family is important. Of course, families, I'm important. Mm. I can't help and serve others if I am not healthy, if I am not good to myself, right? Mm. I, and here's the other, the other great thing. Like, I don't need things. I don't need a fancy car and I don't need a big house. And I don't need, like, you realize that you don't need all of these things and that, that there are, know, I don't even need the titles. Like, you know, I was chasing titles for so long in my professional career. I don't need that either. I will tell you also, my world of friends has gotten very small. It's tightened up. Very tight. Very tight. I get that. I get that. There's only a few people that I trust that I, that, how do you say it? I don't know if you say it or Brene says it or, but really who has the privilege? I only give the privilege of my time and my energy to certain people.
1: Now, Who's earned the right to hear yeah, that story?
0: Who's earned the right? That's exactly what it is.
1: That's what Brene, one of Brene's really important questions. Yeah. So, how has your definition of success changed after all you've been through, both personally and professionally? I know you've touched on that a little bit. You were just touching on that, but I. I want to ask that more intentionally, particularly about success.
0: Yeah. So I always thought success was about accomplishments, right? Uh-huh. Uh, how many letters? What else? Right. What else is <laughs> it? How many letters after my name? How many, you know, what? how many zeros in my paycheck, right? That that kind of sum. And you know, what's so funny is that I've said this to leaders when I mentor them, when I, when I pluck them and try to develop them as leaders, I always say to them, The only thing that matters is the relationships that you have with the individuals that you serve. That's what success really is. And you know, what's so sad about it is I've said it so often, but I wasn't practicing it in terms of what I really believed. No, for me, it was the zeros on the paycheck, the titles after my name, the awards and the celebrations. Now it all comes back down to success really is. It's about these moments. You and I sharing this hour together in this conversation, that's success to me.
1: With you, with you on this. So you mentioned five-year-old Ref, and I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you could go back and talk to younger Ref, what would you want him to know?
0: Yeah. So we both celebrated Milestone Year this year. We're 50, right? And they do. Sleep. We are.
1: <laughs> and looking fabulous. I had
0: the best compliment the other day. Somebody carded me and she's like, you're not this Shut old. Oh, I was, I was, I, I
1: said, nice. I know. I <laughs> laugh when I get carded.
0: <laughs> <laughs> i made my day. I know you're just saying that. She was no, really? I, you know, wow. <laughs> it was like it was just the, great, the best thing. Um, <laughs> But, but you know, they also say that the, you know, researchers say that our cells regenerate every seven to 10 years approximately right. So I am a different person. I am not that person anymore. Um, and here's the thing. Like I, what I would say to my five-year-old self is I'm going to get up tomorrow and try to make you proud for all that you've given me, you know, for the joy that, that he brought to others, I want to make him proud. And, and you know what, five-year-old ref, you don't have baggage anymore. The bags are gone. Um, you know, it's, it's a process. I don't, I'm not saying that every day I'm perfect at it, but I am intentional about it. And I, I don't feel the weight of the world on my shoulders anymore. Now I, yeah, I, I would tell that five-year-old person, the five-year-old little, little man, I would say, don't take on others others pain others because in doing so you are losing yourself you know um oh
1: my gosh taking on other people's pain causes us to lose ourselves yeah. yeah i'm just sitting with that deep truth there yeah that's a powerful shift that you are enough and what what is 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 younger ref how does younger ref feel about you today if you were to check in right now
0: well, I'd hope he'd say that, you know, that he is proud on of me most days, that I am still a work in progress. <laughs> you know? He's a wise one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would say You're
1: a work in progress.
0: <laughs> you know, my nieces said this to me, you know, a couple of them as I said, oh, was going through some really dark time years ago, and I would text one of them just to kind of, you know, just check in and and they would always remind me, you've done so much for so many. Now do something for yourself.
1: Are you getting pushback on that? Cause everyone's used to ref doing for everyone else. And then you're like, no, you set bound. You're setting boundaries. boundaries. You're I'm assuming that's the case. Cause if you're shifting that and you're setting boundaries, you're not hustling, you're not overly accessible.
0: I, yeah. Yeah. That's yes. That's I'm, I'm at a job. I won't tell you uh, publicly what job I'm doing currently, but um, we can talk about that offline, but I'm in a job where I'm good at what I'm doing where people appreciate me, where they don't know my background or reputation. They just, they get the ref who shows up, not the expectation of the ref who did all those things. And that to me is so liberating Uh, and fun. I'm having fun.
1: So you're having fun. And you mentioned we both just like our birthdays are days That's apart. That's so we're exactly like almost right. <laughs> literally almost exactly the same age. But, you know, and so you're talking about some of this beautiful tenderness. Are there any other parts that still feel tender or hold fears about being loved and being enough?
0: That's why five-year-old ref says I'm a work in progress because. Got it. There, you know, and I think this is the, the life lesson that <laughs> right. it's sort of like pain, isolation. Lack of self-worth, those are feelings and places that I know well and can get back to very quickly. And so I need to, every day, that's the work in progress, stay away from that.
1: Got it. Keeping a short list of just that homeostasis, that pull to go back to that. And we live in a world that there's billions of dollars spent on those messages for us to believe we're not enough. So it's hard in Western culture (laughs) too. And you're in LA too. So I appreciate you saying that. So- what are you comfortable about sharing? What you're working on today, and and what surprises you about this current path you're on? Yeah,
0: yeah. So, so I, I will just share that I am incubating a project that is focused on Black and Latino males in community college. So, staying true to to the work that I love and the the people that I that I have served. You know, Black and Latino males um, do the worst in higher education. They spend years in community college and do not get out with certification or job prospects. So, you know, interrupting the school to prison pipeline is part of this work. Uh, So I'm actually, I've been incubating it for the last year and a half. We're hoping to launch in the spring of 22. And I may do it with my current employer as a project within the work that I'm doing, or I may decide, you know, the social entrepreneur in me, right? I may decide to start a new organization that focuses its work here.
1: Yeah, you, you can't shake that, Ralph. That's a part of your DNA. <laughs> know, like, that is my DNA. Yeah, are there any any surprises about this current path that you're on?
0: You know, I I thought for a while, especially immediately, that I wanted to get away from all of this, get away from education, get away from service, get a, you know, like put me in a for-profit organization so that I can, you know, be part of the um Ooh. of the grind, right? No. <laughs> my heart and my leanings and inclinations are, you know. Girl Scouts say the best. Leave it better than
1: you found it. That's my charge in life. It's our charge in life. (laughs) So saying all that, is this how you thought your life would turn out?
0: No. But the truth of the matter is, it all happens for a reason. And I have enough of uh, distance from it now that I see that it was a very good thing. Yeah. Because God knows where I would be if, I mean, yeah, I I would be... God knows if things had worked out differently. I was good at this job. Somebody might say to me, go run for state Senate or Assembly. I'd say, okay. And then, you know, and I'd be truly unhappy. Truly, truly unhappy with the biggest smile and the biggest laugh. Faking it every day. I'm glad I'm not there.
1: You're not faking it every day, any day anymore, every day anymore. No. How's that
0: feel? New. (laughs) It feels really new. Different, uncomfortable, uncomfortable at times. Not going to say it's easy, but it's the right thing. It's the absolute right thing to do.
1: Ref, I hope that you come back when you can publicly share all the juicy good things that you're working on and tell us what you're learning, not only about your meaningful work, but about yourself. This has been a joy and an honor. Thank you for taking the time to share your story publicly. And to kind of, I know a lot of trust there and a big risk. So, But I know that many people are going to benefit from hearing from you and your journey and your learning. So thank you for being with us today.
0: Uh, thank you so much for having me. And there is absolutely no one else in the world that I would have wanted to do this with. And I'm just so proud of you and what you're doing. And let's hope that this helps at least one person
1: No doubt that it will.
0: I'm sure it will. No doubt that it will. Thank you,
1: Ref. Thank you, my friend. Take care of yourself. A meaningful life is one driven by impact, not accolades. Now, sure, acknowledgement and awards are fun and even honorable. But if we're driven by the shame and therefore external rewards, the impact we desire to make is shallow and often fleeting. It can be tricky because we often conflate external rewards with impact, but sustained impact is not always Instagrammable or fits into a catchy soundbite. And again, we're exhausted. So doing more does not feel sustainable. Our worth and meaning have become conflated with ratings and reviews and yes, winning. Ref shared with us how his striving to do more, be more, have more, prove more, left him feeling exhausted, lost, and devastated after a hard and very public fall. He gave us such a beautiful window into the anatomy of how he realized that not enough messages of shame were driving him. Even as he was making a powerful impact, he could not sustain it because of the crushing shame he was holding. So I ask you, what drives you in your work in life? Like really, what drives you? And what shows up when you have a setback or fall? What keeps you going when you experience a hard learning that takes you out? The more you avoid facing and talking about the messages of shame you hold, the more the lies will lead you. And as Brene Brown has so expertly taught us, no one is immune to shame. And an unburdened leader does the work to identify the burdens of shame we hold so we're clear in what drives us and so we can live our values consistently and so we're confident in the truth. Our worth never depreciates. Leading is hard, Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, sign up for our weekly unburdened leader email and other free resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.